0: foster Foster care Care nation Nation. listen up up. this is
1: foster care and i'm Journey
0: strength for the powerless courage for the fearful hope and healing for wounded hearts Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey. Today, I've got you a special guest. I've got a guest that has an accent that is not Southern. It is not Western Montana. It isn't New England. It's Old England. I guess that's what we call it, right? How you doing today, Paul?
1: Oh, no bad. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, all the, all the
0: ladies are going to love the accent. That's the way it gets. <laughs> They're never interested in my funky little Midwestern accent, though. It's funny because
1: over here, your accent will be quite popular
0: today. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, maybe I just need to go visit the UK.
1: Perhaps. You're, you're always welcome once COVID, etc is finished.
0: Yeah, I don't think they're going to let me over there until COVID's done. No. Today I have Paul Moksari. Yeah, how about you, you tell me the last name so I don't screw it up?
1: Well, it's we say Moxari, but it's Hungarian and... I've been corrected by Hungarians before, and I'm told I'm, I'm saying it wrong. But we use the, the, the anglicized version, so it's Paul Moksari for us.
0: We'll go with that. Paul Moksari. All right, I met Paul online, and uh, we were talking about his his journey through foster care. And, man, like so many people, and this is part of the interesting part of this, this journey that we're on. Like you think that a kid did some time in foster care, and they lived a life, they had the whatever going on. And they might have a little bit of a story here and there, but man, these stories run deep. And these are the things that I think makes it so important when we realize that I think the U.S. alone has a half a million kids in foster care right now. I don't know the numbers for the United Kingdom or any other country, to be honest, but I'm certain that there's lots and lots of kids and many stories run deep and we don't realize just how common it is. And some of these common threads of trauma and pain and struggle are the stories that we need to realize and we need to talk about so that we can find people that actually help kids where they need help, help families where they need help to keep the kids from needing to come out of home situations and keep things like this from happening to kids. But as long as it's happening, we need to talk about it. It's part of our culture. It's part of our world. And we're irresponsible to pretend like it doesn't exist. So Paul, how about you tell us just a little bit about how your journey with foster care started?
1: So... I was born in 1987 in west london um parents that were both alcoholics there was domestic violence um neglect you know i was there uh, when my parents were arrested um you know basically my, my parents they were from large families and they weren't parented well themselves so that the cycle had continued to us and me, my brother and my sister, we also experienced the same thing. Um, I only found out when I was a bit older that I actually had an older sister who had been placed into foster care before me. Um, and and obviously, well, my, my dad, he had been sent to jail. He uh, uh, was convicted for manslaughter, but... Uh, when he came out, I think nine months later, surprise, surprise, I was born. And yeah, you know, you see some terrible things growing up in a, in a, in a home like that. Um, you know, I I saw, um, my father throw, like pull a microwave off the wall and throw that at my mum. Um, I think one of my, my earliest memories is being on one on the couch and across the room was my dad and he was actually choking on his own vomit because he'd had too much to drink. Now, as a child, I would have probably been about five then. And for someone who finds it hard to remember a shopping list, you know, when something like that is so clear, you know, and I remember just the worry and the, the panic because my dad was a a round man, we'll say. And there's nothing I could have done to have, to have helped him, really. But just just to be in those situations at such a young age, uh, it obviously has a lasting effect. Now, my, my dad, he, you know, as well as being abusive towards my mother, you know, we experienced it as well. And being the oldest, I think I experienced it the most. Uh, I think my brother and sister, they would have been sort of, you know, three and under, really. Um but you know, just just being I was let roam free, which sounds great, but when you get run over twice and you know in the same spot right next to the house, you know, the, the neglect the neglect there was real. Um, you know, I, I would find that I wouldn't necessarily get breakfast in the mornings, you know, so I would, I would get uh, I think chips as you call them in, in the States. And that was my breakfast in the morning. And then because we, we were, were not a very well-off family. We would, I would get a free school lunch, um, which was frequently stolen from me, from the bigger kids in class. And so there was days where I'd find myself uh, taking apple cores out of bins or offering to take people's half-eaten sandwiches to the bin just so I could eat them, um, just to get me through the day. Um, You know, it was just – it was a result of, as I say, my own parents not having good examples of parenting themselves you know, and unfortunately, I think that is a cycle that is seen all the time with foster kids um you know cycle repeats, and unfortunately, um like my brother and sister, both had their children removed from their care, so then the cycle has again repeated for another generation for them um, I know my wife Eva and me we we were asked if we could actually take in what would be my nieces and nephew. Uh, But to be honest with you, we weren't in a position to do so in a responsible way, you know, and I think really it would have been a bit too close to home for me, you know, because there's, there's things which I still deal with today. So sometimes, you know, it's a challenge just dealing with my own children without the extra added pressures of dealing with social services and, and uh that I don't always see eye to eye with. So
0: don't feel bad. I don't always see eye to eye with them either.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I know that, uh, though my nieces and nephew, that they're well settled now. Anyway, uh, certainly one of my nieces, my si- my sister's uh, girl, like she, they would only live maybe an hour up the road from where we live. Uh, but just with school scheduling and things like that, it's hard to get a time for us all to be together. So unfortunately, we don't get to see her as much as as we'd like. But uh but yeah. So that, that was that was my that was a that was my start.
0: Well I have to back up and ask a question because you mentioned it casually, like we've all you know had this experience in our life. You were run over twice?
1: Yeah. Um we lived our house was on uh like a like a, a T junction, like a crossroads. There's a roundabout there now, but at the time um i remember my my dad he was actually he used to work on cars in our driveway so we lived on the corner and i just went across the road and next thing i knew i woke up and i was actually in the the boot of the car with a a tire a tire wrench next to my head because i remember seeing that and then the next thing because next thing i was in an ambulance and the next thing I was being offered breakfast again, but I'd only just had breakfast, so I must've been out all, all day into the next day, but. Wow.
0: Were you injured in, in any significant way or were you just really lucky? Well,
1: I think I guess. I was, if you can I be lucky been, when you get run over. I think I've been lucky. twice. I'm scared to get run over a third time.
0: Um, I would be too.
1: <laughs> just in case. <laughs> The the only issue is when I'm, when I'm trying to teach my own children about road safety, they know that story so that I'm, they will tell me, well, you got run over and you're, you're not dead. So.
0: Well, don't try and teach them the hard truth of life. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, we, we live at a T junction right now. There's an intersection just 60 yards to my left here, out here that it's a T junction that we live at as well. And, And the people around here are always driving nice and slow and polite, even though they know that there's always kids in the yard. Right. Yeah. Maybe not, (laughs) (laughs) maybe not, but wow. Yeah. I mean, and so you, you mentioned the the neglect side of it, you know, Mm -hmm. and how do you think that's formed the man that you are today?
1: I, I seem to find as I go on in life that I notice little things and, whether or not they're associated with them, I don't know. But sometimes the coincidence is too, too much of a coincidence. So, um, you know, I like food. <laughs> I If I could get my dinner in a trough, then I would. <laughs> I'm a pig. And so, but going back to, you know, not getting fed properly and things like that, so I associate the two. So now that I have, well, as much food as I, I can buy, really, you know, my, it's not, I know when I've had enough, but my brain is just, you know, I don't need to eat a whole cake, but I still eat the whole cake. I, <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I, mean? may,
0: I may struggle with some of the same things, although for a different reason.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's another thing which um, I've struggled with for years. So, another another strong memory I have um, is my, you know, I got up in the night like a lot of kids do, and uh, I, I needed to go for a pee. So I went for a pee, and um, I got I peed in the toilet and I missed the toilet. So I remember being upset and crying and my dad's reaction to that was basically to to beat me so but at the same time i would have been maybe 4 or 5 years old cuz i can't remember obviously cuz it's a long time ago but around that time and so now if if i'm out in the, well if i'm out a restaurant or or anywhere a public toilet um you know i can't i can't stand and go for a pee i have to go I'm shy, essentially. I have to go into a cubicle and I'll go in there. Um, which is annoying because if, you, if you're ever going to like a football match or soccer as you, you'd call it, um, you know they're busy in those toilets and, <laughs> and you don't want to miss the game. But there's been times where I've queued to, to use a urinal and I get there and I just can't go. And then I have to go and queue for a cubicle. So again, I associate those two things together. You know, uh, they just seem too interconnected for them in my brain. And I'm I'm not a psychologist, obviously, but too interconnected for me to not be connected. If you know what I mean.
0: Oh yeah, uh, our childhood affects who we become as as men and adults. You know, men and women it's all tied together. I'm certain of it. Um, you, you mentioned being hungry a lot as a kid, my family didn't have a lot of money, but we were never hungry. Mm-hmm. I may not have had the coolest clothes and you know, I survived that just fine, but we, we were never hungry. My parents always fed us. What, what do you remember from that time? How, how did that, how did that affect you as a kid be going to school and not having what you needed to, to get along just fine there?
1: Well, you know, we we would have gone to school um, and not been in clean clothes, not been clean ourselves. I remember a social worker coming around one day and trying to teach my mum how to wash us.
0: I want to take a break real quick here and ask you for some support. We need a little bit of help in getting this show out to the masses. So if you could share this episode or one that really speaks to you with your friends, family, and on your social media, it would be greatly appreciated. If you'd like to help us out with a couple dollars a month, a few dollars goes a long way. We have a Patreon account. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. You can always find our information on fostercarenation.com and don't forget to reach down in your podcast player and hit subscribe now so you can be notified every Tuesday when we put up new episodes.
1: Well, you know, we, we would have gone to school um, and not been in clean clothes, not been clean ourselves. I remember a social worker coming around one day and trying to teach my mum how to wash us um you know it's in in my adoption file it mentions that we were nicknamed uh cuz my my surname now my adopted name is Moxari, but as a child I was St- Paul Stevens so we were we were nicknamed well I was nicknamed Stinky Stevens Because I was dirty at school, Um, you know. We there was one. There was another time we had head lice um, as kids. So there's me, my brother, and my sister. And rather than wash our hair and use the the comb, like you or I might do, like our our parents just shaved our heads. And that was that was my little sister as well. All her blonde hair just shaved off. You know, we just we look like prisoners of war or something like that. I remember because we, because we didn't have a lot of money, uh, you know, you get the, you know, when it's icy, you get the, the, the sand grit you'd put on the footpath. Uh-huh. So I, I thought I'd found diamonds in the school, in the school playground. So I, I was finding these things. I found if I put them in my mouth and wash the dirt off, I have all these diamonds. So I I thought I had this pocket full of diamonds, but what I actually had was a a pocket full of salt and a really, really sore belly. (laughs) I believe that. I
0: don't think (laughs) you're supposed to put that stuff in your mouth.
1: No, uh, I found out the hard way there. I was, I was feeling pretty sick and I wasn't any richer. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That, that, (laughs) That makes sense that you weren't much richer. Uh, growing up uh, hungry though, I mean that, that always affects kids in, in different ways. And in our experience, we've seen kids who've, who've not had food, who've dealt with hunger issues or neglect issues around that, who end up with problems later on with hoarding food and, and things like that, or, or eating until they puke. We we've, we've had a couple of kids who've gone through that. As a matter of fact, the the last child who stayed in our house was, um, I don't know what her, her backstory was. I don't know if there was any problems with food as far as availability of food or not, but that was something that she would eat until she made herself sick. If, if you would let her. Mm. And I've seen a lot of kids struggle with that on into their teen years and adulthood is, has that been a real struggle for you coming through those ages or, or did, did you get, um, get through that without any real problems?
1: No, I, I got on really fine. Um, uh, my, my mom, my adopted mom, she, she was an excellent cook, so was my dad, in fact. So we always got a nice, really well-rounded diet. Knowing people that have suffered with uh, bu- with bulimia, with making themselves sick and the hoarding and all that, like I knew someone before who used to who would eat out of the bin, you know, just because she she'd thrown food away. Um, but for for her, she told me before, it's a control thing. So she'd had a moment in her life when she was younger where she had no control over what was going on. And, you know, I remember her telling me that it was, it was a bereavement in her family, someone she was close to, but it was, so for me, I was thinking someone, someone died. I mean, that happens all the time. You know, it was, it was nearly like a, a non thing for me, but for her, it was a big thing. And that loss of control she found that she had control back over something, which was her eating and making herself sick. So, you know, but perhaps it's it's a control thing, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, you, and you'd mentioned you had a lot of, um, a lot of physical abuse, a lot of mental abuse, um, a lot of, a pretty good amount of neglect going on in your life. And then you went into foster care. How old were you when you went into the system?
1: Um, I would have been mm, probably about five, about five.
0: And then as soon as you went into the system, it doesn't, the story you sent me doesn't sound like you were sent into a wonderful place right off.
1: No, well, I remember uh, there was a time because me and my brother and sister, we had been in and out of foster care, you know, just for sort of give my parents a break and things like that. But I remember being left, uh, our social worker saying, right, we're going to be separating you, Paul, from your brother and sister. We left them off first. And I remember sitting in the car and thinking, thank God I'm not going in there because I remembered the house and I knew that I'd had a bad time there previously. Now, the foster the home that I went to instead was amazing. If if I could if I could meet that family again now, I'd I'd be over the moon. And they they took me in. All the kids there were all foster kids, which were either being fostered or had been adopted out of foster care. Um, and I I was given one of the girls' bedrooms. I remember she had these little Swarovski crystal figures, which I was told to keep my hands well off. But I remember being in there and. Being shown to brush, how to brush my teeth. I, I don't, I don't know if anyone had ever really shown me, but taking time to teach me how to brush my teeth. Um, it was my first time I'd ever played a computer game. Uh, I just had a brilliant time. They, 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 they made, they let me make my own uh, dinner placemat with my name, with my name and everything on, and then they must have. Well, I suppose now they'd, they'd laminated it, so that was mine. And everyone had their own. So, and, and straight away, I was I felt included with everything that was going on. You know, what do you want to have for dinner? Or you know, it wasn't like, oh, here's a new kid coming in. You know, I just felt part of the the system straight away, and I, I've always remembered like with such fondness that home, because you know, perhaps it was the first time I'd really felt. You know the warmth of a family. Um, After a while, I was told, "Right, you'll have a place for you in the other house now. That's where you're going." So, yeah, I was I was keen to be back with my with my siblings. But again, this was another home where some of the kids had been in foster care and had been adopted into that family. Uh, and, you know, so they had they had a nice open green in front of the house. I think I was in it one time, but I can remember because it, it had snowed. They had a, a big field and a and a playground at the end of the street. Again, I think I was there one time. Um, and that was on a, a visit from my, my bio parents. But, yeah, it was just because I was the oldest and I'd, I seemed to have taken the got I bore the brunt of perhaps jealousy or whatever it was from she would have been the nearest in age to me, uh, a recently adopted ex foster kid in that home. Um, and she, she would do things like uh, she ripped our wallpaper off and, you know, ruined the wallpaper and then told them that it was me but it wasn't me. Um, she, she wrote our names with a lipstick on the wall, total denial, and she was believed every time. So, you know, I was getting punished and blamed for things that I hadn't done. Uh, there was one time her and me, we got the same pencil case for school. And one day I couldn't find mine and I went and hunted and hunted and hunted around because it was, it was to start school. And I knew that I needed my pencil case and it's not often I would get new things. So, uh, eventually I found the pencil case. It was underneath. And when I opened it, she had, uh, she defecated in it and just left it there for me to find. And who do you think got blamed for doing that? It was me. Why would I do that? to my own, my own things. Um, you know, they had. They would have a rule in that house where if you're out in the garden, then you were out in the garden. That You couldn't run in and out, you know, freely. And they had a good sized garden. But I remember, you know, sitting in like a little plastic Wendy house out in the garden and it was thunder and lightning. But I knew that if I came in, that would be me in for the rest of the day. Uh, so I just had to sort of, pushed through it and I just sat in that Wendy house by myself <laughs> for the, for the duration of the storm. Uh, you know, it just, you know, there's so many things I got, like, I got bit, bit on the ankle by the, they had a, like, a little Yorkshire Terrier dog. Now it didn't draw blood or anything like that, but it scared me. And I cried, but they didn't believe me. And I just got shouted at, you know, just, um, I had, I had to clean the the bedroom floor, but I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to use a hoover. I did it with my hands. So picking crumbs off the floor, you know, I would have been in there when I was about six years old and, you know, being told you have to make your own bed. No one had ever shown me how to make a bed before. So, and I don't know how big you were when you were six, but shaking out a duvet, you know, it's hard work when you're, when you're about four feet tall, so, um, you know, so, but the the roll on from that is that now, like my 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 oldest boy, he's eleven, so when I'm, you know, sometimes I have to catch myself because I'm thinking, why why can you not do this? Sure, I was doing this when I was six seven years old, you know, why can you not do this? What what, and I have to catch myself on. And remind myself, my situation was 100% different from his what he's experiencing himself now. Um, the added pressure there is when I, especially my oldest son, when I see, when I look at him, there's so many reminders of myself, you know, like where he would maybe struggle with maths or at school sometimes or with his concentration. I was the the exact same. So I know the struggles, and I know – so sometimes I just have to give myself a bit of a shake and remind myself that what he's experiencing is not the same as mine, and so they can't be treated the same.
0: You had a lot of – sounds like a lot of mental abuse in that house. Did that all come from the kids, or was that from the parents as well there?
1: I suppose the parents as well, because – they would never, they would never believe me, uh, so they would always take everyone else's word over ours, and mainly mine because I was the oldest. So I, I would have done most of the, you know, talking because I was able to. But you know, I also took most of the punishment. Um, you know, that the in in that home that was. The home where the older sort of foster sister that I had—that's where I suffered um, some sexual abuse in that home. So into a place which is supposed to be of safety, you know, to improve your situation, and if anything, I felt like it had gotten worse. Now, I did. I. I a few years ago I actually did a bit of you know Facebook stalking slash um, hunting around on Google and actually found out that, that that foster that foster family actually received an award from their from their local council for their services. And I have wondered before, you know, was I was I the only one? Because, you know, I'm sure they they had three of us and in at that one time. But you know they've obviously been at that fostering for a long time, and whilst I, I never received any sort of physical or sexual abuse from the foster parents, you know something lacking with like within that home, in that I could be left in a situation where that could happen.
0: Oh yeah, because you were around six you said at that time yeah so yeah you're not in an age where you're you're really prepared to handle that mentally yourself let alone speak to somebody and let somebody know what's going on
1: sure
0: it sounds like there maybe wasn't a whole lot of of parental uh guidance going on there maybe they weren't very involved or watching keeping an eye on the kids
1: well when they were there they they were on it yes but at the same time we had no one that would take our side. So, as I say, you know, I, I could have, I could tell them anything They would always, you know, if it was always everyone else's word against ours. So, you know, that, that obviously takes, you know, it affects you.
0: Oh yeah. How long were you with that family?
1: I was there, I think looking back 18 months, I think I was in that, in foster care.
0: And where'd you move from there?
1: Uh, well, from there, uh, well, whilst we were there, we started getting introduced to uh, this couple who lived just south of London, uh, in between London and the coast. And eventually, you know, we had a few meetings and then we were asked if we would like to go and stay with them for a bit. And they became my adopted parents, um, and I'd never knew, I went from my, my biological family was working class, you know, lower working class, if anything, uh, very little money. Well, as I say, it wasn't a great situation. Um, and into this sort of middle class, plenty of money, two cars, um, in one of the wealthiest areas, you could buy a house in England, you know, I had a big forest out the back of my, out the house, you know, which I was, as I got older, I was allowed to roam about more. In. Um I'd never knew anything like it. They had three dogs and they'd adopted three kids, me, my brother, and my sister, which in one go, that's, that's a big commitment.
0: Yeah, it is.
1: Yeah. So, and I think three kids is a bit different from having three dogs. Uh, but it was just, I would never knew anything like it. I remember going in and they said, Right, Paul, this is your toy box. And it was all new things. I was given, my dad gave me uh, an old cassette tape. And it had, you know, Yazizi top, Uriah Heap, and, you know, all the old bands. And I would listen with my little Sony Walkman at night with those little, remember those little foam uh, buds? The I'm little t- the little tin band over your head. So, I would I would lay in bed just listening to this rock music, and then you'd wake up in the morning. and It'd be that like, the batteries were dead, and um, you know, I, I I never knew anything like this. You know, the amount of space we had, we were out for family dog walks. It was a it was a total other end of the spectrum from up to that point to what I'd had experienced. You know, getting these home-cooked meals every night, you know. I never knew someone could spend so long in the kitchen until um, I had these two parents um, that just would be in there all the time cooking, and, you know, it was such a, a bizarre atmosphere for me. And, look, but at the same time, you know, you're calling these these people which in the grand scheme of things, you hadn't known very long. But I remember getting taken to the courts and they were, and that was the final day where we, that was our adoption day. It was some, I think it was sometime in May, but, and we were asked by the judge, do you want to go ahead with this? We said, yes. He let us try on his big wig that the judges wear over here. and, And that was it. And all of a sudden it was mum, dad, you know, it was really weird. And up and you know, we had been going to this school which was right outside the back of our house. And as I think everyone in that school, all the kids knew, all the teachers know that you're these foster kids. And so you you've been pigeonholed, you you have a label the age. So all of a sudden we weren't foster kids anymore. We were just you just sort of felt like one of the normal ones. The only difference is that when the kids at school were telling all these stories about what they've been doing, my stories just would generally have a bit of a different ring to them because up to that point, my my experience had been so completely different. So yeah, it just, it was amazing. And I, you know, they took us. We were we were getting taken on holidays to France, eating all these strange foods. It was it was bizarre and amazing, and it's everything that you'd want to do for your own kids. Um, but I think, you know, looking back, um, both my parents, they. You know that always, like all parents, they always want the best for their kids. That and whatever they do, right or wrong, they they always have the best intentions or should usually have the best intentions. Um, like my dad, he was a single child, he was the only child, went to boarding school. So, again, and he had actually been adopted as a baby. Um, so his experience of growing up. Was again different. Not necessarily your normal. Mum and dad leave you to school in the morning. He'd be left at school and wouldn't see his parents for till the end of term. So he uh, he was strict, and to some degree, I needed that. I needed routine, and I still need routine. Um, but at the same often he was too hard. So, uh, and I understand that they, that suppose they were trying to just have these sort of get us into the way of being normal kids, you know, treat us the same as other kids were. But I remember asking all I wanted when we moved into that house was a found they had a cupboard under the stairs, a bit like Harry Potter, but smaller. <laughs> and, All I wanted was to go in there, read my books and have a little torch in there. And I think looking back, I just needed a safe place that was for me. And they said I wasn't allowed that. So in the end, I used my wardrobe and did the same thing. And I would drag drag my blankets in there and take my book and my torch and I'd sit and read my books. Um, Now, as as I grew up... um, as i say I said earlier, there was forest I think it's been there since Roman times, and as i- as I got older, I was like I was able to venture further and further and further and because i'm I like my food, as I mentioned earlier, my mum always knew that once I was hungry I'd always be back, and I was so now the woods the forest it became. My sanctuary, I loved it there. I still do now. If I go for a walk in the woods, instantly I feel just everything wash out of me, you know, whether it's work, stress or anything. Uh, We're lucky where we live here in Northern Ireland now, we have uh, a forest park just up the road where they filmed a lot of Game of Thrones. And it's, it's a beautiful place. You know, trees just covered in moss, rivers, waterfalls. And I love you it. Know, again, I just love being in the forest. That's my safe place. But, but unfortunately, the I think the stresses I'd, I'd had growing up, they'd snowballed and snowballed. And then, you know, to a point where, you know, my parents, I think they were trying to get me caught up because more than likely I was behind my, my peers at school, so trying to get me caught up. So I was math tutor. I was doing practice tests all the time on the computer. You know, it was a lot of pressure very quickly. And, you know, as I say, I, I find it hard concentrating a lot of the time. So, you know, I'd be getting so angry, so cross. And one day, you know, because i would be doing these things and out the window, I could see all my friends in the, in the street playing but I wasn't allowed out so eventually one day it just boiled over my parents had gone out and um, I just I suppose I had a bit of a breakdown you know and I would have been 11 years of age I would have been in my first year at secondary school which I don't know what way that works across the pond but it's that would be from age 11 to 16 and I just remember we we had like a rope that we would have made swings with me and the local kids and I would grabbed it. And I just, I was on a mission. I just down the end of the street, turn right. And there was a, there was a tree, which local, all the local kids called the climbing tree. So as I'd stormed out the house, my friend, Nick, me and him were best friends Uh he came after me. He chased after me. He, he could see that I was upset, I think. And off he... Uh, and... just thought I was trying to make a, a rope swing, like we usually were with this rope or what. But basically, I think... You know, I went I went to that tree, full intentions of ending my life. So... I think if Nick hadn't been there, then... I would have been successful. Now, Nick was part of the reason why I was unsuccessful because he he was speaking to me, trying to get into my head. And also the fact that I was really bad at knots and I'd left the rope too long. So my feet were on the ground. Um, now, incidentally, I've just got back in touch with Nick and he's actually a therapist. <laughs> so you could say he's... He's been a therapist since he was about eleven years old. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe yeah. you
0: helped him on his career path.
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll have to get a commission out of him. But he, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so f- I remember from then, like he got me back home, um, told my mum what had happened because they were back. I think they must have been out shopping or something like that. Um, I remember just thinking, this is me. I'm going to some sort of um, what do I call it like a nut house I called it I don't want to go to the nut house I didn't want to go to a some sort of psychiatric unit um, but she got me she went and spoke to our family doctor and got me onto a course of counselling and I was there from then when I was about 11 um, I had a break you know a few years later because I just felt like nothing was improving. I remember asking the counsellor, what is wrong with me? Why am I like this? Why am I so angry? And she just said, you have low self-esteem and you're a very angry young man. Well, Jesus, I know that. I know that. I'm looking for answers here. So I, I left. I didn't go back. And then there was one day when I was about 15, 16, and we are at the table and I just, I think that that week, my dad, he, he was trying to get me out to meet new people and things like that, which is fair enough. Uh, I'd wanted to go out, I think it was about Halloween and be out with my friends. So if your dad says, you can go out of your friends, if you promise you go to this club next week, you know, you're a 15 year old, want to get out with your friends. What do you say? You say, no problem, I'll go. So I went and that, The next week I was in the house and he said, right, are you ready to go to this club? And I said, I'm not going. And he took me by the hand and dragged me down the stairs. And I remember getting to the bottom of the stairs and taking a big, you know, brawler at his chin. And I must, oh, he must've heard it whistle past him because it was very close. And I remember he looked at me and I looked at him and I ran away very quickly. (laughs) And again, I was just an emotional wreck, you know, so i went i went i went back I went back to counseling um and from there, maybe i had a I was a bit more mature and I was able to discuss things a bit better so I, went, I finished school and then I was about seventeen. all I wanted to do was join the army uh, which I did I joined. When I was 17, I think I was the youngest one or one of the youngest two in our platoon, in a platoon full of men in their 19, 20. I think think the oldest one was about 26 and everyone called him old man, which makes me feel particularly old now. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but yeah, so that, that got me that got me away from that home and I felt like I'd seized some control back in my life, which up till then, you know, when you're in, when you're in foster care, um, you don't know, you're, you're sort of told that you're going here, this is what's happening. You know, these are going to be your new parents, which of course, you know, when you've, you've had a little stay at their house, you sort of think, Good God, this is amazing! Yes, I'll have these. These'll these'll do for me. These parents, and so so yeah.
0: Well, I know you know you said you went off into the into the British Army there, um, and what what'd you do in the military?
1: Uh, well, basically, I went to join as an infantryman, and I loved it. It was everything I'd always wanted it to be. It was really hard. Um, as as you'd expect you know running around shooting gu- guns and you know getting dirty and you know doing ambushes at night it was it was amazing when I, whilst I was there my um it came out that my my parents were actually separating and getting a divorce so you know that in itself is very common too common perhaps but you know very common But for me, I'd always had it drilled into me, you know, this is the forever family, forever home and everything like that, which, you know, it just knocked me. You know, I just, I didn't know how to take it. I remember uh, hearing that on the phone, that 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 was happening and just bursting into tears now. Um bursting into tears in the middle of your barrack room in front of ten other guys doesn't always go down <laughs> well. Sort of crushes your man credentials somewhat.
0: Especially amongst the infantry.
1: Especially amongst the infantry. Um I remember there was there was one guy, he would have been my battle buddy. And he was he was okay in camp. And even worse, on exercise, um, I I seem to do quite well. But I remember he clocked me, you know, having my emotional moment. And after that, whether or not it was to, you know, make himself feel a bit more important. You know, he'd walk in in the mornings and he'd hit me around the head with a newspaper and things like that, you know, things were, you know, name-calling and things like that. I wouldn't go so far as bullying, but he he noticed a little weakness there and he was exploiting it as best he could. And he, it wasn't just me, he did that too. He was he was well-known for it uh, until one day he hit me. It was, you know, you're up at five o'clock in the morning and I'm not really a morning person, so um, when it's early in the morning and someone walks past your bed and hits you around the face with a rolled-up newspaper, you know, he quickly found out that I would launch a very large bin at the back of his head down the hall. Uh, that that was the end of that. That was that knocked on the head. But um, so, yeah, the, the divorce it just knocked me, and uh, I was, I was, you know, the letters I was receiving from home got less and less. And I mean, this was all during my 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 training, and. You know, I was. I would have my dad. He would be on the phone crying, and he was. He would be telling me, you know, my brother hadn't left his room. You know, my brother was always a strange lad. Um, we know more about that now, but uh, he was always a strange kid. I thought it was him. That's just the way he was. But you know, he wouldn't speak to anyone. He wouldn't leave his room. You know, he was probably suffering with about depression. There, um, his my mum and sister had moved. From England to Northern Ireland at that stage, so we were sort of opposite ends of the country. And m- meanwhile, I'm away doing my army training. And in the end, I just I thought I'm seventeen, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to go home and I'm going to fix this. This, you know, because that's well, that's certainly within my powers to prevent a divorce when you're seventeen, isn't it? But when you're seventeen, you think you know more than you do. So anyway, so I. I handed my notice in to leave, and because I was under 18, I was I was still able to do so. Um so yeah, that was me. I, I moved over to Northern Ireland, I had no job lined up. Uh i very the only reason my money lasted me so long was because I lost my my bank card. So <laughs> that's the only reason my money lasted me so long. <laughs> and then the banks were different, so I had to change bank and all that. So my money lasted me a good couple of months. But yeah, so that was me. I moved over, moved over to Northern Ireland uh, with my family. And eventually I got myself, you know, I got myself a job in a, a supermarket. We call it Asda. I think it used to be owned by Walmart. And uh, yeah, it was nice to earn a bit of money again. And then after a, after a little while, um I decided I was going to buy myself a motorbike, even though I'd never had a, lesson in my whole life. The only, the only lesson I'd had was on YouTube. And a friend of mine I work with, let me have a go on his one, two, five out in the, out in the car park, which I promptly crashed. (laughs) Apparently, uh, the, uh, the lever you use for the rear brake on a bicycle is actually a clutch on a motorbike. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I put it, I put it into a wall. And I was I was very lucky not to be hurt, but it made me want a motorbike even more, which I did. I got a bank loan out, which I couldn't really afford. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I had my my bank loan. I'd got I got myself into a relationship, which was looking at the time you think brilliant. I need I need this, but looking back, it was it was a toxic relationship. You know, there was cheating going on. Uh, there was mental health issues there. Um, you know, and then when I turned 18, I'd also got my adoption file. So when you've when you've had a time in foster care and been adopted, you have all these, I always call them, and it's probably very cliche, it's like a missing pieces to my puzzle. So little bits and, you know, time bits of your timeline, which aren't there, or they're there, but you don't know about them. Um, so this helped fill some of that in. But it also unlocked a lot of memories, which, you know, must have been repressed or something like that. And all of a sudden, I was having, you know, I had this horrendous bout of insomnia where I could get to sleep fine. But I would wake up after maybe a, a couple of hours, and that would be me up for hours and hours, just. You know, and I don't know if you've ever had trouble sleeping, but the more you want to sleep, the less likely it is you're going to sleep. So I had that going on. You know, I started getting panic attacks. Um, you know, these, these memories started coming up about um, some of the abuse I'd suffered in care. And, you know, I got to a point an ambulance got called for me at work because I was having this panic attack. And then from there, the doctor referred me on to uh, it's a charity called Nexus in Belfast, and you know they they I think they deal primarily with you know survivors of sexual abuse, and so I would go and see them once a week, totally free of charge. You know you could I mean, you could give donations, but I had no money, but. They they helped me look at things less from a place of shame and, you know, that it was my fault because suffering abuse when you're five, six years old, that is not your fault, obviously. You know, and they helped me look at things not from a better perspective, although it was, but from the correct perspective, which is not the place I'd where where I had been looking at them. So anyway, through that counselling, I realised as well that things with my girlfriend at the time, I mean, that, that was adding a lot of pressure onto me, which, you know, it was all just snowballing with me. And it was a bad time, bad, bad time. So I was on, you know, antidepressants and diazepam um, when I needed it. Um, but once, once I broke things off with her, uh, you know, we were in a position where I couldn't afford the rent of my house. I couldn't afford, you know, the pay off this motorbike, which I'd actually sold for cash. And I still couldn't, I still had the loan that I had to pay off and I couldn't. So yeah, so it, it, it was a dark time for me. And I, I remember, um, again, for the second time like really planning out life again. Um, I knew when I was going to do it, where I was going to do it and how I was going to do it. Um, but the key was getting out of that house. Um, my my adopted father, he cleared my bank loan for me. Um, I didn't know I'd had, they'd been paying into like an ISA for me. Uh, since they'd taken us in. And so when I turned 21, I had to, the day of my birthday, go up to the bank and transfer that money straight back into his bank um, <laughs> to clear that debt back, uh, which was heartbreaking. But, you know, lesson learned, lesson learned. Um, yeah, so I went to live with my dad for a while and, you know, it was It was rubbish. It was crap because you've gone from having your own little house, you know, albeit I couldn't afford it, but I had my own little house, I was living by my own rules, and all of a sudden I was 21 years old living back with my dad with his rules and all the rules that I didn't like in the first place. Um, And then on one night I got invited out for a a night out to a nightclub I had to borrow 20 pounds from my dad in order for me to go. And I remember being there, with my friend, who'd arranged this, and seeing uh, there's a there's a there's a big complex called the Odyssey in, in Belfast and it has bowling alleys, cinema, uh, ice hockey and all that. And I remember seeing these these three girls walking across. And I remember nudging him saying, God, look at her. Look at her. She's lovely. And, well, that was in 2008, and now she's my wife, and we've got three kids. Um, She gave me a non... She came at me in a non-judgmental way without trying to fix me or anything like that. And as helped steer me through my life so far you know she I, I needed someone like that um, so for me she's more than just my the mother and my children and my wife like she has saved me from a dark dark place and dragged me out of that to where I am now and from that night everything's got a lot of, quite a lot better actually
0: sounds like you've had a few significant turning points in your life, you know, maybe for meeting your, your uh, new foster, eventually adoptive placement where you met the, the parents that you would live with, um, you know, a, uh, a psychiatrist, a psychologist who probably helped a whole lot along the way. Um, and the, uh, the charity that, that helped you out, you know, to, to reframe your perspective and eventually finding, finding a woman who, who helped finish that job quite nicely apparently and keeping you in in the right way. I want to go back to that, to the part with the charity though, because most people who are suicidal, we don't understand it, right? If you've never been there, I have not, I don't understand it. It's, it's not something that I I can wrap my head around and even pretend to understand. So I never, never want anybody to think that I'm just presuming I understand that, but I just got to ask, what is it that, they were able to say to you? How were they able to show you that all those things that happened in your past were not your fault?
1: I remember one thing in particular that they'd said to me was you are speaking to a six-year-old child and they tell you that they've been abused. And, and what would you say to them? And I think I said something, you know, like, oh, you know, it's not your fault, blah, blah, blah. And for some reason it didn't even click with me what they were trying to do there. But um and and so she just said to me, Why don't you take your own advice? And for the first time I thought, Why the hell don't I take my own advice? Because it, it seems like I've got the right answers. I just I'm not willing to listen to them myself, you know, And um, you know, that, that it, that there sounds so simple, which it is, but so often the right answers are the most simple ones. You know, I think, you know, you get yourself in such a, you know, you overcomplicate everything, you know, because you're stuck in your own head and it's just spinning like a washing machine. In there, all these thoughts, and and it's really, it's really easy to get stuck in in all your own head mess, and sometimes you just need someone to give you a bit of a shake and point point in the right direction and let you go, and that that is that is what they did. Um, there was. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of talking, of course, like like with any therapist. Um, and I'm 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 sure that you know with that there, they would see people in a lot worse condition than, than I was. Okay. But certainly, it helped me, and I've I've always been grateful to that charity. Um, like sometimes we would actually drive past it, that that building, and I still know the little window that was my room that I would have used. You know that was that was it. Um But yeah, just it was a dark time. I need I needed someone, and I'm I'm glad that the doctor had put me. You know, I don't know if they if the doctor had just up my pain up my medication or whatever. If it had had an, if it would have had enough of an effect. But um, you know, and um, therefore would I be here now? I don't know, but that charity they sent me to, you know, sent me on my way. And as I say, I met my wife and everything from there has improved.
0: Wow. Yeah. finding Finding the right people tends to make all the difference in the world. And I think for what you're talking about there, especially, one of the things I've noticed is that kids tend to believe that they're in control subconsciously they believe that. And so if their parents get divorced, it's usually their fault. If I'd been a better kid, they wouldn't have gotten divorced. If they've been abused, they manage to internalize that somehow or another as being part of their fault. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's that, that, um, it's the ability to realize that that's just a load of garbage. And the truth is, is that sometimes bad things happen to people and, the only thing you control is your response to it. Yeah. And it sounds like you finally found a place where you sp- respond well to the garbage that was thrown into the, into the beginning of your life. Do you still have a connection with, with any of your biological family?
1: Um, well, we we had got in touch just, just with a bit of looking and a bit and going through social services um, we had got in touch with my uh, my bio mum. She she was still an alcoholic. Um, you know, actually, her brain was just frazzled from the booze. I remember we actually I was living in Northern Ireland then, and we went to visit her in a hostel in London. And she offered it. She said, "Would you like a cup of tea?" I said, "Yes, please," because we're British and we love tea. Yeah and uh <laughs> i i said plenty of milk please and she poured me a glass of milk is uh, you know her, she didn't you know now i know also that from from our files that like our parents they would they would be very low on like iq levels um they would be very intelligent people but you know speaking to her you know she was quite pleased with herself because she seemed to know all the paramedics in that part of london because she'd had so many falls and breaks and things like that so all the all the, all the local ambulance drivers she knew them all by name which is a strange thing to be proud of
0: yes but, it I mean, is
1: yeah but you know that that was that was that was where her head was at but unfortunately at that time she had said to me you know you know, I've been clean for six weeks and I haven't, I've been off the drink. You know, the, the doctor says, if I, if I keep drinking the way I was, I'll be dead in six months. Now me and my brother, we actually bought her a, a phone so we could get into contact with her, but she never charged it or, you know, you could never get hold of her on it. And she was just back up to her doing what she did roaming the streets of London and drinking and, 'Cause you can drink you can drink on the streets in England. Uh that's fine. Um, you can just go into any shop. There's no like brown paper bags or any of that. You just um, but yeah, and then one day I was actually I couldn't get any work with uh uh the way things were in two thousand nine or two thousand and eight, two thousand nine with the recession. So I'd actually been out of work for a few years, couldn't get anything. And when I was living in this tiny town um, in Northern Ireland and I mean, people that were l- locals couldn't get work. So I certainly couldn't get it either. And so I had applied to do a job, which I had when I was 16 back in England. And when I was over there, I got a phone call one day at work saying, oh, is, it, is this Paul? Said, yes. Oh, it's St. Mary's hospital in uh, Paddington. Uh, um, Are you okay to talk? Yes. And just to let me know that my, um, my mother had died. And they'd actually been looking for us for six weeks. Now here in Northern Ireland, you die. And within three days you're buried. So she'd been in a, in a fridge for six weeks, basically. So she said, Oh, right. Okay. You know, would you like to come and see see her and pay your respects? Yes, of course. And I was never an emotional person. I would, you know, it would take a lot to set me off. You know, it doesn't matter what, you know, how sad the charity or the advert or the movie or the music. My eyes were bone dry, but good God, I cried. I was uncontrollable, uncontrollable crying. I remember ringing my wife, um, telling her, Um, and yeah, it was, it was the alcohol that killed her, you know, now when, when I, I've met people before whose parents were alcoholics and I, I always sort of think, you know, like your kids, they're going to remember these moments. And, you know, my mum was in some state of disrepair, you know, she, she still had, um, still had vomit up her nose, you know, from, she basically had had a heart attack and, uh drown in her own vomit you know they couldn't stop her being sick in the hospital um you know blood loss uh, everything it was a horrendous horrendous way for anyone to die but yeah I was it was it hit me like a like a brick and it coincided with a well, that was the year before that no she passed away then the following year My nan passed away. Then the next year, my adopted mother passed away, and then a year after that, stepdad passed away. So it was a it'd been a quite turbulent lot of years. Um. But yeah, um, my my, and then my my biological father, I would message him, or he would message me. But it's just like getting blood out of a stone, you know. I've asked him before, um, you know, can I ask you a question about when I was a kid? And he will say yes. And then if there's anything, you know, that he doesn't like the sound of, he'll always just say, oh, I can't remember. But it could be something like I asked him about a memory I had, just to clarify it really. And it was of uh, we were crossing the road from our house, across to the housing estate, across the road. And a car pulled up next to a, you know, a, like a big skip full of uh builders robber, bricks and masonry. And they just started throwing all these bricks at him. And I remember seeing him dropping the road and these men just, oh, he, he got a terrible beating, uh, not just with bricks. But anyway, I asked him about that and he just said, I can't remember But he, you'd think that would be, that would be the sort of thing you would remember. So now I I just don't, I don't waste my time asking him. Um, And then, and then my adopted dad, we don't talk anymore. You know, we, we fell out in about 2012. Um, We, we try, I tried patching things up and reaching out. And, it became a moment for him to stand on his pedestal, you know, and it became like a one-upmanship to a level that I wasn't prepared to, to go. I'd been working hard and improving myself, and I didn't need someone making me feel awful about myself. And then more recently, I've tried reaching out again. I've sent him pictures of the kids, and, you know, I sent him a, an email to his work email, so I know that he will have got that just to say, look, we don't have to have go out for dinner and, but you know, maybe if we could just check in every now and again, let, let each other know how things are going with, our, with life. And, and he never replied. So I, I'd said, look, just so I could let me know. So I can draw a line in the sand and move on or not, but no, never got a reply. So I'm in a situation now where I have, I've had two families (laughs) now. Now I've got none. Um, it's, It's a tricky one.
0: Well, I mean, you've been through, through a lot and that's putting it very mildly. If you had the opportunity, because you never know who's listening right now. If you had the opportunity to talk to a parent who was in the middle of their struggle maybe their kids are in foster care they're going through their own bag of troubles you know fighting their own addiction demons what would you say to to a, a parent who was struggling with that
1: i would say seek help show them that you're changing don't just say you're changing because they've probably heard that all before you know the the hollow i'm sorries and things like that They've heard that all before. They need to see with their own eyes. They need to have something physical that they can see, they can touch. They know. I mean, kid, the kids know when their parents are, you know, misusing substances, and they know. You know, if they, they know when they're back on them again. You know, they're young, but they're not idiots. Um, and and you may and you may think as a parent, especially if it's related to substance misuse and things like that, you may think, oh, well, they're only young they won't remember. But it's not always the things you remember. It's, you know, if you're neglected as a young child, as like even my brother and sister, they've had their issues. As I say, they've had their children removed. They were babies. They were really, really young. They have no memories that they know of of that time. And yet it has affected their life, you know, way down the line with, you know, whatever, you know, traumas that they suffered themselves as, as babies. So, you know, people, people misuse substances for lots of reasons, but there's people out there that can help you. There's charities, you know, it just doesn't always have to be someone you have to pay. Um, seek help show don't just say and be honest because lying is not going to get get you anywhere it's only gonna break break more trust
0: well after talking to you it's obvious that that has affected you in a lot of ways but it seems like it's affected you in some good ways as well how has this story really shaped who your family's becoming today
1: well, my whole thinking is, and I'll, I'll not be the only um, parent to do this. Is I had such poor example when I was young. I flip that round as best I can, and I still make mistakes because I'm, I'm a human being. You know, I get tired, I get cross, get angry, but because I've had such a poor example, I flip that round, and I know n- what n- not to do if you know what I mean.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think anybody with any wisdom in their heart looks at the hard things that they've walked through in life and tries to find a way to make that load a little lighter for their, chi- their kids.
1: Yeah, totally. I just, you know, the thought, even the thought of my kids going through anything remotely near what I had to go through as a, as a child, you know it's awful you wouldn't wish that on anybody um so you know there's there's times where i've had to catch myself because you know you get angry and then you go to that sort of primal you know i'm angry and then you go your base instincts and that's stuff that's learned behavior from when you were young um you know, look, we don't we don't smack our kids. I think um, I smacked my oldest boy once on the bum, um, and I felt horrendous for it. And that actually was when I I went online and looked and found uh, the Dad Edge. Then, and well, you know how helpful that can be yourself. Um, but I just knew, you know there's lots of things we can do to help improve ourselves, but it's just, it's just putting in some time to try and do it. Um, You know, you you don't have to be angry your whole life. You don't have to be a victim your whole life. You know, like I, I know that I have survived two times of my life where I would have taken my own life. I've got through that. I've moved on and I'm, I, i at this stage, I couldn't imagine ever being there again, but um, you know you don't we don't always have to be victims, even though we have been victims of abuse of neglect of you know you know all all these things you know, and there is another way you know you don't have to repeat the cycle again and again and again,
0: yeah. Well, I appreciate your wisdom there because that's one of the things that we're hoping to see change in our world is people learning from the mistakes of others. That's my mom would be proud of me because she said this to me a thousand times as a kid and she was right. Learn from other people's mistakes, son. You won't live long enough to make them all on your own.
1: Well, that's right. That's right. And also, (laughs) um, I used to work with an old guy and, um, I tend to find you know sometimes when I'm in jobs like a like a mentor and this old fellow Dennis, I worked with him when I worked in the supermarket, and he was a very religious man, but he was very good at using profanity um but i'll I'll not repeat exactly what he said, but he it was along the lines of you know if you surround yourself with bad people. That's not what he used. But if you surround yourself with bad people, you will, in turn, you'll reflect that. You're a mirror image of the people you surround yourself with. Um, As, you know, you and I, if if you're in, you know, if you're trying to develop yourself, you would have heard things similar to that plenty of times. But it's so true, you know, when I was at school, when I started hanging around with the kids that sat in the library all lunch, well, guess what? My grades went up. You know, when I started hanging around with the people that used to smoke dope down the alley, down the side of the school, my grades went down. You know it was, that that's one of the truest things I think anyone's ever said to me is uh, again, that old man, he's passed away as well now, but I'll always remember him telling me that at about half six in the morning on the way to work in his car. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's, I believe the, the line I've always heard is a uh, quote attributed to Jim Rohn. Uh, it was something along the lines of you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time around. Exactly. And it's so very true. So very yeah. true. Well, I appreciate you coming on here to tell your story today, man. It's it's a deep and story and it's full of trauma and trouble and pain and, and horrible things. But man, I'm just happy to see one more person who's been through so many things that found his way out.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on.
0: Yeah, because a story like yours hopefully can inspire others who who maybe are in the middle of their hard place.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So it's it's, been,
1: there's light at the end of the tunnel.
0: There's always light. You just have to find it, and sometimes, sometimes you just have to wait a minute till your eyes can adjust to the darkness.
1: That's right.